Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Daisy Cousins Show. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I'm thrilled to be here on ADH-TV for your viewing pleasure every week, twice a week. We have a terrific show for you tonight. You will hear from businessman, commentator, and the man who sued ScoMo, Matthew Kamenzuli, on just what the once great Liberal Party needs to do to pull itself out of opposition. Saxon Davidson of the Institute of Public Affairs will talk us through the con of compulsory superannuation and how it's hurting middle Australia, not helping them. But first, Federal opposition leader Peter Dutton has impressed over the last few months. A welcome development for those who are frustrated with the party's slide to the left since Malcolm Turnbull ousted Tony Abbott in 2015. Particularly heartening was the decision announced in April for the Liberal Party to oppose the Indigenous voice to Parliament. Well, the Liberal Party uh, resolved today to say yes to constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians, yes to a local and regional body so that we can get practical outcomes for Indigenous people on the ground, but there was a resounding no to the Prime Minister's Canberra voice. It should be very clear to Australians by now that the Prime Minister is dividing our country and the Liberal Party seeks to unite our country. Further to that, Dutton slammed Prime Minister Anthony Albanese on the 3rd of August in Parliament, calling out the fact Labor has continually refused to provide Australians with details about what the voice will entail. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. I seek leave to move the following motion. That the House 1 notes that the Prime Minister is dividing the nation with his divisive voice proposal by deliberately refusing to provide detail to the Australian people. Two notes that the Prime Minister promised on 34 occasions to implement the Uluru Statement from the Heart in full, which includes the Makarrata Commission's national treaty-making process, but has since continually denied that there will be a treaty. Three notes that the Minister for Indigenous Australians said work on a treaty was to start within weeks, but the Prime Minister is now walking that back. In two train wreck media interviews, the Prime Minister is telling different audiences different things on the treaty. Four notes that despite the Prime Minister being shifty on whether a treaty is being worked on, he's already allocated $5.8 million for the Makarrata Commission national treaty-making process, but refuses to explain how $900,000 of this money has already been spent. Notes five notes that the government's Minister for Indigenous Australians has treated this House with absolute contempt by repeatedly and consistently failing to answer direct questions in question time, and six, condemns the Prime Minister for his complete inability to be upfront and honest. In addition, Dutton pointed out a very uncomfortable truth about Anthony Albanese and, indeed, left-wing governments generally, which is their strategy to proverbially divide and conquer. Because the Australian Prime Minister is seeking to divide his nation. That's what's happening here, Mr Speaker. The best case scenario on this incompetent Prime Minister's approach to the voice is that you might get a 51-49 yes outcome, bearing in mind that you need a double majority. Members on that my right. splits our country straight down the middle. Straight down the middle. Now, no Prime Minister in good conscience would decide over such a process. 
Now these are all strong, astute sentiments and I commend Peter Dutton very much for espousing them. One wonders, however, where this has been for the past year or more. Since the 2022 election, liberal voters, especially those on the conservative side of politics, have been waiting for Peter Dutton to pick up the pieces of the now sullied political party who made the colossal mistake of capitulating to the left on everything from net zero to COVID and start smooshing them back together. Certainly, Peter Dutton's handling of this loaded, ignorant question from a journalist in April indicated he's the man to do it. Um, you mentioned again today the so-called rampant rates of child sexual abuse in Central Australia. Now, we've seen the snake which advocates for Indigenous children come out and strongly reject your call for a royal commission into that. Um, they've labelled it, it an uninformed uh, approach. Uh, why do you think those kind of peak bodies are, are rejecting those calls by you and, and what evidence do you have that there is this so-called rampant child sexual abuse occurring in remote central Australia? Well, with, I mean, with respect, that's such an ABC question. Do you live locally? I mean, do you speak to people on the streets? Do you hear what it is they're saying to you? I mean, do you, do you believe... Do you, you live locally. You don't believe there's any problem here? No, I'm asking you, what evidence do you have that there well, is... Well, I've spoken to the police and the social workers, some of whom are out on stress leave at the moment because of the scenes that they've endured. They have kids taking them back into homes where they've been sexually assaulted and six-year-olds grabbing onto their legs, screaming not to be left there. So they're the people who are on the front line. I don't know what the academics are saying. I don't know what the bureaucrats are saying. I can tell you, though, uh, what the human experience is on the front line. And if the ABC and others don't see fit to report that, then frankly, I think it reflects more on the ABC than it does uh, on the locals here. And I don't think you're doing your job if you're denying the reality of the circumstances on the ground. Outstanding. This kind of rhetoric is encouraging, as is the Liberal Party's opposition to The Voice. But why was that opposition only announced almost a year after Anthony Albanese made The Voice his flagship policy promise on election night in May 2022? And even though Dutton has promised that the Liberal Party opposes what he calls the Canberra Voice, He's made it clear he does support legislating so-called local and regional voices instead. There seems to be this determination still from the Liberal Party to convince people to vote for them who, let's be real, are never going to vote for them. I'm talking, of course, about the affluent progressives who live in the leafy green suburbs, formerly safe liberal seats that, since the 2022 federal election, are dominated by the teal so-called independents, who were funded by activist investor Simon Holmesacourt. We can see this not only in the long delay for the liberals to announce that they are opposing the voice, but also in the clumsy identity politics that has been adopted by some of the women in the Liberal Party. For example, Federal Deputy Leader of the Opposition, Susan Lee, who last year appeared to take great offence at what she felt was a dismissive hand gesture in Parliament. The question actually said the first act of Treasurer. The Prime Minister is not addressing the Fair question. Enough. The question said the first act of Treasury. Treasury. The Deputy Leader will resume her. Okay. The, de the Deputy Order. 
Now, I am all for calling out the left regarding their hypocrisy towards conservative women. Ask any woman on the right and she will tell you that all the worst misogyny she's ever experienced comes from the supposedly feminist left. But a shooing hand gesture? Susan Lee, pick your battles. Then there was this hysterical display by Liberal Senator Sarah Henderson in March this year over comments made to her by Labor Senator Ken Wyatt that, while unclear, appeared to make some accusation of her being far right for supporting Victorian Liberal Moira Deeming against allegations of being a Nazi sympathiser. President, Senator Wyatt said the most disgraceful thing and he's to withdraw it. I am disgusted in you. All right, thank you, Senator, he Senator Henderson. I did not hear the remark, but in the interests of the Senate, I'm going to ask you to withdraw. Madam President, I withdraw. I refer to the text messages that Senator Henderson uh, said. That's what you. I said. Thank I withdraw. Now, nobody likes being insulted. And we all must give Senator Henderson full credit for standing up for Moira Deeming. Certainly, that is not easy to do within the Liberal Party. But to cry like that in the middle of the Senate for the whole nation to see because a male senator said something a little bit mean? Really? How embarrassing. This, coupled with the relentless chat immediately following the 2022 election about quotas for women in the Liberal Party, proved the Liberals have learned all the wrong lessons from last year's loss. The way to win against the left is not to try to out-left them. Instead, you need to present the public with an appealing, opposing argument. And while many commentators insisted that the loss of the Liberal heartland to teal independence was hard evidence that the Liberals mean to move left in order to regain power, not right, that's a misreading of the situation. While the Liberals may have lost the formerly safe seats of North Sydney, McKellar, Wentworth, Kooyong, Goldstein and Curtin, that wasn't on the strength of Liberal voters in those electorates abandoning the party for the Teals. According to the Australian National University's 2022 election study, those seats were won primarily by already progressive voters who were willing to abandon Labor and the Greens to tactically vote in a wet left independent for the sake of unseating a Liberal. As reported by the ABC in December last year, of those Teal voters surveyed by the ANU, 31% had voted for Labor at the 2019 election, 24% the Greens, and 18% for the Coalition, with 23% voting for others. The report found the seats were largely won through tactical voters, with the primary intent being the unseating of the Liberal Party. In fact, Generally, the Liberal voters in those seats were perfectly happy with the party as is, with the Liberal candidate in all those electorates garnering more of the primary vote than the eventual Teal winner. Hardly a glowing endorsement for the Liberals to go woke. So what's the solution? Well, it's been said before, but I will say it again. The Liberal Party needs to go back to its roots in the form of the philosophy of its founder, Sir Robert Menzies. 
Menzies founded the party in late 1994 to early 1945, and in a 1949 policy speech regarding the election that year, which they won, he uttered these stirring words. This, ladies and gentlemen, is our great year of decision. Are we for the socialist state, with its subordination of the individual to the universal officialdom of government, or are we for the ancient British faith that governments are the servants of the people, a faith which has given fire and quality and direction to the whole of our history for 600 years? This is what the Liberal Party now must decide. Are they for the subordination of the individual by an all-powerful government, or do they believe that governments are the servants of the people? Do they buffet around an apathetic, demoralised population, or do they seek to galvanise the people to achieve new heights with this Menzian philosophy? The great vice of democracy is that for a generation, we have been busy getting ourselves on the list of beneficiaries and removing ourselves from the list of contributors, as if somewhere there was somebody else's effort on which we can thrive. It's a wonderful quote by Sir Robert Menzies. Do the Liberals keep tiptoeing around the dignity of individual effort, or do they draw inspiration from this 1949 cinema advertisement which offered Australians a choice between Menzies' free and democratic Liberal Party and Labor's socialist agenda. On December the 10th, you'll be called upon to decide between two ways of living. One is the socialist way, with regimentation, compulsion, and complete control. Our lives governed by a Canberra dictatorship sworn to this pledge. I also pledge myself to actively support at all times the party's objective of the socialization of industry, production, distribution and exchange. The alternative to socialism is the free democratic way of life, with full employment assured by full production, with individual effort assisted and encouraged, with individual effort rewarded, with communism banned. Our choice on December the 10th is between a socialist government and a liberal government. A liberal government which believes that prosperity can be attained only through continuous, enterprising development of our national resources and active expansion of overseas markets for this country's products. The Liberal Party believes that every worthwhile Australian wants to own his own home, choose his own job, run his own business, make financial headway and bank his earnings where he wishes to bank them. The Liberal Party believes in and will maintain a full program of social services, but it also believes in high wages for productive effort, incentive payments and profit sharing, in complete freedom within the law. Now, that kind of rhetoric would certainly come in handy in aspirational electorates like, say, Werriwa in New South Wales, where right-wing minor parties, the Liberal Democrats, the United Australian Party and One Nation took a combined 22.74% of the primary vote. There is no reason the Liberal Party couldn't be picking up not only those votes, but potentially reluctant Labor voters in similar areas with the right policy platform and the right spiel. Now, there have been many predictions over the last 80 or so years about the Liberal Party's demise. All have been inaccurate, as each time, 
the Liberals have found a way out of the political mud and back into power. So, what's the way back this time around? Joining me to discuss that is the wonderful Matthew Kamenzuli. Matt Kamenzuli, it is so fantastic to have you here this evening. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And it's just such an honour to be here. I'm such a massive fan of your work, Daisy. Oh, that is so kind of you. Thank you, Matt. It is, it is fabulous to have you on the program. I'm so excited about this discussion. Now, look, as we know, the Liberal Party is in a lot of trouble at the moment. They're having trouble winning office. I mean, the only state or territory to have the Liberals in power at the moment is Tasmania. And they're also having trouble energising their base. What exactly is the crux of the problem here? Uh, the, the, the problem's sort of many-fold, but the, to me, the key, the core, the biggest problem in amongst all of the other challenges the party has is that there are way too many vested interest groups, lobbyists, and, and people that don't put Australia or the public first, but rather their own best and personal interests. There's way too much transactionalism happening internally within the party. There are, there are just too many people that are, are trying to get commercial outcomes, I think, through their involvement with the party. And more than that even, um, just sometimes people are interested only in power for power's sake. And, and, and I think, you know, the Australian public is, is, is starting to see through that. I think we as, as, uh, as, as liberal-minded people are starting to become very frustrated by it. And I think we're getting very close to the game being over, to be perfectly frank. Mm, yes, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting time for the party indeed. Um, I'm going to uh, quote you to you, Matt. I hope you don't mind. You said, people need to start to become a bigger function of government. The people need to be a bigger function of the institutions that we all rely on to tell us what's going wrong because right now these institutions are letting us down, the bureaucracy's letting us down, the government's letting us down, and politicians are letting us down. Matt, do you think that Australians have forgotten that the function of government is to serve them and not the other way around? Yeah, look, I don't think the Australian public have forgotten that. I um, mean, we've certainly all had a fantastic reminder of, uh, of, of how out of touch the political class has become over the last three or four years, mm. certainly the last three years. Um, and, and I actually think it's, it's more that the political class... The, the, the politicians and the public service are the people that have forgotten that it's their job to serve. And I, I do believe there's a growing frustration amongst the public. Um, and, and, and that is why, you know, the political parties, particularly the Liberal Party, is working so hard to thwart internal democracy. And the reason they're doing that is because more and more people, there's a growing dissent, there's a growing frustration both within the party and in the electorate. And we're starting to see things like the teals pop up because people are looking for an alternative it's just a very bad alternative. Mm. I, I believe there are vested interests behind that group as well, right? So, <laughs> so, so the solution isn't as, uh, as simple to seek. But I, I do believe the public are becoming more and more frustrated every day with the, the, the quality and, I think, disconnectedness of, of the political class. 
I think so. And um, I think we really saw a lot of that during COVID. It seems to me that the attitude of both political parties, obviously Labor, but also the Liberal Party, is that freedom is for the state to give out and to take back as it sees fit, not freedom as an inherent right of the individual that they're born with that governments can only maintain or violate. Wasn't it disappointing to see the Liberals betraying their base by pushing this mentality? Absolutely. Um, I was quite vocal. I was on the state executive uh, during the majority of that sort of COVID period. And I was very vocal uh, as an opponent to almost every single measure that both the state and federal governments, New South Wales state and the federal government had put. I thought it was entirely illiberal. Um, and and there, was this, there was this mistaken belief amongst those in the party that somehow they had to genuflect to the, the, the media calls. And I'm not sure who makes these calls, but you know, somebody's making calls and they have to genuflect every time to these calls. And I, 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 I always thought, and I, and I still think, that people like Dan Andrews might well be rewarded by the Labor voting base because, you know, they don't really mind stay-at-home orders for the most part. I'm not saying that all Labor voters do, but certainly <laughs> there was a good chunk, a good base of voters that don't mind staying at home anyway. You know, the public service don't mind it. They still don't want to go back to work now. But the Liberal voting base, the, the property owners, the aspirational Australians, the people who weren't getting their rents paid, the people who were, were struggling to pay their rents because their, you know, professional gigs were were being set aside um, because lockdowns closed so many small and medium businesses that, that employed just so many good, hardworking, middle-of-the-road Australians. And the frustrations caused by all of those policies um, and all of that force and all of that idea, as you said, that the government had the ability and the opportunity to, to, to take your freedoms away and give them back piecemeal if you behaved yourself mm. was just absolutely ridiculous. And, and yeah, I was very vocal, a number of us were, and I think you know there, there was some effect, uh, uh, but there just weren't enough of us inside the organisation pushing against it to stop it completely. Well, good on you for pushing against it, because as you say, there were simply not enough people, including in the Liberal Party, doing it. So I commend you. Thank, thank you for that. And look, you've you've mentioned, say, what I like to call the laptop class, which is sort of you know you know Labor voters and also you know soft Liberal voters, for instance, who who liked the stay-at-home orders, and then the rest of of the of the population, which are the business owners, the working class, the tradies, blue-collar workers, um, etc. These are the people, aren't they, that the Liberals should be trying to win over. Uh, for example, in the electorate of Werowa, for instance, at the last federal election, about 22.74% of primary votes in that electorate went to either One Nation, the United Australia Party, or the Liberal Democrats. And those are real Western suburbs, working class areas. There is no reason the Liberal Party shouldn't be getting those minor right-wing party votes, should there? I think the Menzies we believe statement speaks exactly to the majority of Australians. And I believe that the Liberal Party needs to go back, dust that statement off and read it and get very acquainted with it. Because if they stick inside of that narrow band, it's pretty, I suppose it's broad enough, but it's certainly a, a fairly narrow band when it comes to the rules around how big the individual needs to get and 
how important it is that that aspiration is is not only encouraged but it's it's fanned like a like a like a small flame into a raging fire. Mm. Um, the, the, I mean, I, I grew up in Western Sydney myself. Um, I started my business from a bedroom. I believed very much in the Menzies vision for Australia, and I'm a product of it. And I believe that there are a lot of young men and women and young boys and girls out there in, you know, Western Sydney, Southwestern Sydney, Northwestern Sydney, out in the regions that just want to have a go. And when Scott Morrison said, you know, if you have a go, you get a go, and he was going to keep the promise of Australia for all Australians, um, you know, I, I don't know how you get that one wrong. I mean, it was such a platitude, but he, he didn't. Um, you know, it's really simple. Don't just speak those values, live them, act them, and pre-select people who are passionately prepared to deliver on them. Exactly. And I, I mentioned in my um, editorial, Matt, um, you know, a, a, about those values and, and, and things like that. And what, what I'm wondering is where has the major party gone that only 10 years ago was sceptical of climate change, that heavily critiqued renewable energy, that vehemently defended small businesses and that actually stood for something? They were the voice for the voiceless. Where has that gone? Well, what you're seeing... I think is the downstream impacts of lobbyist control of the Liberal Party, vested interest groups and power for power's sake over a 10 to 12 year period. I mean, we had a, a, a fantastic prime minister, I think, in Tony Abbott. Um, he was always struggling with, you know, a base of support in his own you know, party room simply because of that, you know, that, that sort of, you know, downstream impact. I think what we've found over the last 10 to 12 years is more and more stuffed shirts and stuffed dresses have gotten into parliament and they just acquiesce and genuflect to whatever is the zeitgeist of the media or what they believe to be popular or whatever this staffing class who are all very, very young, very, very disconnected, mostly private school, not that there's a problem with that, educated kids who are completely out of touch with middle Australia, don't understand why people vote Liberal, have never run a business, don't know anybody who does, have never employed anybody, have never worked in a complex job, have never had a real job, um, advising and, and, and trying to control narratives and play silly games. Now, the, the solution is really simple. It's pre-selections. Mm. It really is. It's, you know, the reason I had to sue Scott Morrison, and I'm not proud of the fact that we had to get to that place. I'm disappointed for the party that it came to that. But the reason was to get pre-selections on to give members, the rank and file, a vote in who would be their elected representatives should they win an election. And that is really important. Grassroots campaigning can only happen when you're carrying the grassroots. Not having pre-selections not only gets us the wrong people into parliament, these captain's picks, who are responsible not to their conferences and to their electorates, but to their power broker, mm. um, but it also gets us into a place where it's almost impossible to get elected. People don't want to vote for Plastic Fantastic. <laughs> and we've seen it. It's just too much of it. They, I, and I don't think the North Shore is, you know, is, is, is some kind of tea or heartland. I truly believe the vast majority of people that switch their vote from Liberal to Labor, uh, sorry, Liberal to Teal in the North Shore was simply because they didn't want to vote for the Liberal Party in the current state that it was in. They are not long-term Teal voters. Mm. They aren't some great big, you know, leftist, 
you know, social conscience driven. I mean, we've all got a social conscience, but I don't think that many people think that, you know, it's a good idea to switch off the economy on the altar of the climate. Um, and and I, I don't think that the whole place changed all of a sudden. I think what you saw was a great and growing frustration with liberals and people voted Teal to punish. And it was conservatives and, and libertarians that voted Teal. It was not some great shift in the electorate at all. Mm-hmm. Not at all. It was a punishment vote. Yeah. Yes, and you have you have a very good point there because on the subject of those teal electorates, I mentioned in my editorial that the majority of people who voted teal were actually Greens and Labor voters who were voting tactically um, to get out the Liberal candidate. It was only about 18% of those votes that went to uh, the teals that were from yep. the Liberal Party, which would indicate, and particularly since in all the seats that the Teals won, uh, the Liberal candidates still got the plurality of the primary vote, Mm. that most Liberals in those seats were actually perfectly happy with the way the Liberal Party is is as it is. But there certainly is a faction there that wants to punish the, the Liberals. Now, my question is, why does the Liberal Party try to keep imitating Labor in order to get back the voters who punished them by leaving them for not being conservative enough? Well, if you look to the vested interest group's argument, it explains it perfectly well. That's where the money is. Mm-hmm. So lobbyists want to control uh, both sides of, of, of the political aisle, and there's a reason for that. People that engage lobbyists, big business and, 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 and those groups, uh, pay both sides, one side for an outcome and the other side for their silence. So it's very, very important that the lobbyist class controls the Liberal Party at all costs and they will never step outside of the areas where the money can be made. It's really that simple. There is no money in looking after the Australian people and looking toward their best interest. That's, that's not profitable. What's profitable is, you know, climate action. Mm-hmm. Why, why is climate action profitable? Because we're going to destabilise the energy markets and we're going to make more money, you know, selling an, a, a reduced amount of generated power um, and we're going to have a money go round of uh, vested interest groups in the, uh, in the green energy space. And, and we know that doesn't work. So, so there's no money in that for anybody. And that's why, you know, you'll start to see things like um, just, just, just a lack of political courage even in, in, in with all due respect to, uh, to, to people like Mark Speakman, who won't, won't come out and say no on The Voice, even though I believe his electorate's saying no on The Voice. And the Liberal voting base is resoundingly saying no on The Voice. And some of Labor is saying no on The Voice. But, you know, there's just this lack of political courage combined with vested interest. It's really very, very simple. And it's interesting, isn't it? Australia tends to sort of pride itself on, on its, you know, clean politics and, oh, we're so different from America with all their, their lobbyists, etc. cetera. Uh, the hypocrisy of that attitude is, just, is staggering, isn't it, when you consider the vested interests here? It's, the funniest thing about this is, in the main, the people that complain the, the loudest about not becoming like America are the people that very much are making that model work in the first place. You know, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll hear certain Teal supporters talking about how we don't want vested interests in government and how we need more, you know, you know um, transparency in governance. Really? Really? <laughs> That's what they're saying. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. I, I, I can't for the life of me work out how they're getting away with it. But somebody needs to say something about all this and do something about it. And I, I just want to give a voice to the voiceless in that space. I mean, it really is the job of, of the opposition leaders in all of the governments around Australia to call this out. But they're not. They're not. Mm. They're not. Because they're afraid of or they're part of this lobbyist 
uh, great big blob that is slowly turning everything. I mean, if you ever remember the never-ending story, it's turning everything into the nothing. <laughs> the nothing's coming and just it's, it's consuming everything. And, and it doesn't have to be this way, Daisy. It doesn't. There are plenty of things we can do. Yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's interesting you mentioned the oppositions. I mean, in my home state of, of Queensland, I don't know how the Liberal Party up there is not winning every election when you consider who Labor has out in front. You've got Anastasia Palaszczuk. I mean, dare we even speak her name? You've got Stephen Miles, who's the Deputy Premier. I mean, just the lack of political talent in Labor is sort of laughable. And yet the opposition up there continually perpetually loses, even though you have good people now like David Crisofulli, who, who generally I like, who's leading the party. What do these liberal oppositions have to do in order to pull themselves together and be viable alternatives? Right, that's a really good question. I think they need to demonstrate an immense more political courage. People are looking, they're searching, they're desperate for leadership. People like John Howard had the ability to bring the electorate along and didn't just acquiesce into whatever the media narratives were of the day. A lot of these media narratives are really being set up by the same lobby groups that are trying to then come up with the solution, right? They're the firemen and they're the arsonists. John Howard was masterful at crafting narratives and bringing people along on good things. Tony Abbott did the same thing. I mean, he got a lot of criticism for his three-word slogans, but they were very, very, very effective. So I say, be an alternative, but be an alternative that's authentic. Mm. Be an alternative that's real and is informed by the we believe statement. Go back and shake down the, you know, all of, the, all of those parts of the party that need to be shaken and just say, look, we aren't going to win until such a time as we, as a movement, start to demonstrate why we're here and these are the reasons why we're here. We believe in smaller government. We believe in the freedom of the individual. We believe that, you know, men and women were created equally but different. Mm -hmm. and, and boys and girls at, at three years old, and I think I said this on Twitter yesterday, boys and girls that are three years old can tell you the difference between boys and girls. Yep. And I think people want to see the grown-ups do the same thing. I think we've reached a place where, you know, people aren't going along necessarily with the deadly virus pandemic narratives. I mean, it's, it's starting again and I don't think anybody's buying it. No, I, I think, agree. You know, people don't believe in global boiling. I think that's just started to reach a fever pitch. <laughs> Klaus has to turn off the jug now. You know, it's too much boiling. <laughs> Turn it off, <laughs> right? So, you know, there's this crazy, crazy place where, where all that is not true seems to be, you know, forced down people's throats. And I think there's a, a great sense that it's, it's nonsense and we just need leaders that will come out and say, that's nonsense. Absolutely. Really nonsense. Absolutely we do. And it is nonsense. But my theory about politicians, particularly nowadays, is that there is a certain vanity about them in, in the Liberal Party. They, they just can't bear the thought of the Twitterati screaming at them, even though they represent such a tiny minority of Australia's population. They can't bear the thought of having the Guardian say mean things about them. Politicians, if they want to have political courage, they have to get over this vanity, don't they? Well, look, I think, I think if they can't get over the vanity, and this is somewhat unpopular amongst some of the liberal circles because it almost appears to me that we're moving towards the American system of people keeping their job forever, no matter how badly they do it in <laughs> Parliament. Right. Um, roll them. Yep. Roll them. If they won't find their courage... If they don't have courage, if they are not speaking to the We Believe statement, if they're not speaking 
liberal values and acting in liberal ways. And I think the public is smart enough now to see through the idea that we're going to sell them on doing ABC and XYZ, but when we get into government, we're gonna do blah, mm. and you're gonna love it. Um, that's not gonna work anymore. People are sort of done with that. So there needs to be an authenticity. And if that authenticity doesn't exist in your local politician and you're in the Liberal Party, roll them, get rid yep. of them. Exactly, Simple. exactly. I agree with you. We don't and need them. On the, no, we don't need them. And on the, on the subject of that, I mean, the Liberal Party has shrunk enormously over the past couple of decades. And I think it's part of the reason this country is experiencing this tyranny of the minority who decide who sits in Parliament. Matt, is it time for the silent majority to take a bit of a lesson from, dare I say it, the left and start noisily petitioning for what we want? I think it's past time. Yes. I, think, I think the time to do that was 10 years ago. We might have averted all sorts of problems. <laughs> I mean, don't forget that the majority of the crisis that we see now started about eight years ago, and that was a Liberal government in, in Australia, federally. There was uh, a Liberal government in South Australia. There were other Liberal... There was, there was a Liberal government in Tasmania. Um, you know, we, there was a Liberal government in New South Wales, the big state. And those Liberal governments contributed just as much to this as the Labor governments did. Mm -hmm. In fact, I couldn't tell the difference living in Western Sydney in a hard lockdown zone during the reign of the great Gladys, um, <laughs> where, where, where I, I felt like I was under the leadership of, uh, of, of Dictator Dan. I thought it was a horrible place to be. And people didn't know about our story. They were always talking about Victoria and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I've got helicopters flying over my head and I'm under curfew and I'm not allowed to leave my house. And if I don't, you know, take various medical treatments and, 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 and you know, demonstrate those to people, then I'm, I'm not going to be able to leave my home for an extended period of time. And it was the great Dom Perrottet that crafted the first mandates, mind you, in, in Australia for mine, um, and I think around the world. So, you know, it was, the, it was the construction worker mandate, and if you worked in one suburb and lived in another, you had to be vaccinated, and if you lived in a different suburb, you didn't, even if you were going to that same suburb. It was bizarre, it was wrong-headed, and it was foolhardy. So, yeah, look, I think people, are, people are need to get involved. The only way out of this, for all of us, is to actively get up join political parties. Don't just speak, don't just shake your fist at the television or at you know the latest internet feed that, or, or any of this other stuff. Get up, get involved, join a party, try and get jobs in the public service. Mm. Try and get jobs in council. Councils are inordinately powerful for some silly reason. You know, the, the second and third rate politicians that often find their way into local government who go to all of these conferences and eat the mints and drink the water and carry on and be told how to make the world a more sustainable place and they think they're doing, you know, really good work but really all they're doing is destroying their own towns. Uh, get in and get in the way. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, write letters to major corporations who are woke. Write letters to your politicians um, and do what you can. I mean, a big part of why I'm doing what I'm doing is because I want to give a voice to the voiceless. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And you do it so well. And I, I just have to ask you before we go, you're exactly right when you say people need to get up. And in order to do that, they I think what helps is inspiring leadership. We now have Peter Dutton at the helm of, of the Federal Liberal Party. He's in the, the right faction, so to speak. Do you think that he can lead the party back to its Menzian principles? I think Peter Dutton has exceptional instincts. I think he is a very wise and very kind and decent human yes. being. I think the, the media uh, um, are, are somewhat afraid of, of those qualities in him, which is why they go 
well, the, the left-wing media, that is, um, which is why they, they go so hard trying to spin the opposite narratives. I mean, I remember the unelectable Tony Abbott as much as anybody else who won in <laughs> landslides. Right? He, beat, he beat the wonderful Julia Gillard back to a minority government and then won an election. I think Peter Dutton can and most likely will do that. If it's not this time, it will be next time, and I believe the party needs to lock in behind him. Um, I think if he doesn't do it this time, he's going to come very, very close because I think Albo is almost insufferable at this point and yes. he, will, he will drive that vote up. But also um, what we need to ensure is that Peter Dutton is, is delivered encouragement. See, the word courage is in encouragement. So there's, there's two components to this. There's the political courage of the leaders and we need more of it, in, in, particularly at the States. Um, but what encourages leaders is a whole bunch of members and supporters rallying around and delivering them people into parliament that will also back those those, those you know, considerations in. And most importantly, I've never, ever, ever seen in the wild, in all my time involved in politics in Australia, which is over, what, 16 or 17 years now, mm. I have never seen a L Green Labor believing Liberal voter in my life. Mm. I see plenty of Green Labor voters in the Liberal Party, um, you know, working for the vested interest groups, but I've never met somebody who is a Green Labor supporter who votes Liberal. So going after that territory is a stupid idea. It's very simply a stupid idea and it isn't going to work. Mm -hmm. So they have to stop that. Peter Dutton understands that and I think Peter's fantastic, but he does need more supporters and he needs more encouragement. I think so. Um, I agree with you about B Peter Dutton. He is a very decent man and I, I think he does has, have that political courage. But as you say, he needs more people to stand up behind him, get up, as you say, join the parties and make a difference that way. Matthew Kamenzuli, you are fantastic. All the best on your quest with the Liberal Party. Thank you so much for appearing on the show this evening. Thank you. Well, with a Labor government in power, it should come as no surprise the changes to Australia's superannuation policy are on the cards. Labor has a peculiar view of superannuation. It believes that money belongs to anyone except the individual who has spent their whole adult life working for it until the day that individual withdraws the money upon retirement. And of course, that's not the right way to view superannuation. Super belongs to the individual. It just happens to be held by a super fund because apparently Australians can't be trusted to save enough money for their retirement and require the government to legislate those savings on their behalf. That is, of course, the great paradox of compulsory superannuation. Now, while the coalition was in power, Australians could be reasonably confident that their government was aware that super belongs to Superfund members. We saw that with the enabling of Australians to withdraw up to $20,000 of their super during the pandemic for financial relief, and also in the fact one of former Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison's flagship election policies in 2022 was to allow Australians to withdraw some of their super to use as a deposit for their first home. And as people get close to the election, I know they're focusing more. And I wanted to make sure that they understood fully that if they vote Liberal and National at this election, they will long at something they've wanted for a long time, they'll be able to get access to their superannuation to help them get that start in life with buying their own home. When they sell the home, they put the money back into their superannuation so they preserve their superannuation nest egg. But this helps them get that start. 
Since Labour has come to power, Australians' confidence that their super is safe from the government's clutches has been well and truly shattered. Not just because of the recent removal of tax concessions from super balances, but by Labour's intention to legislate the objective of super. The exact wording of this proposed objective was made public in February this year. During a speech in Sydney, Labor Treasurer Jim Chalmers outlined said wording. The objective of superannuation is to preserve savings and deliver income for a dignified retirement alongside government support in an equitable and sustainable way. Let's review that wording one more time. The objective of superannuation is to preserve savings to deliver income for a dignified retirement alongside government support in an equitable and sustainable way. Now, while that wording may seem innocuous, I can assure you it's not. First and most obvious, legislating the term preserve savings for a dignified retirement as part of the objective of super may effectively prevent Australians from accessing their super early on compassionate grounds, which they are currently allowed to do. However, the absolute kicker in that wording is, of course, the inclusion of the words equitable and sustainable. As I'm sure you know, these are the buzzwords used by woke politicians and corporatists to push for environmental, social, and governance policies. That is, the dreaded ESG. In his speech, Jim Chalmers outlined equitable and sustainable in purely financial terms. Now, securing the future of super is mostly about enhancing its ability to deliver good returns. And as our proposed definition of the objective makes clear, it's also about making sure the system is as equitable and sustainable as it can be as well. Equitable to provide similar outcomes for people in similar circumstances and target support to those in need. And sustainable so that we deliver government support for better retirements in a way that is targeted, effective and enduring. However, this statement earlier in his speech about what he believes is currently needed to facilitate Australia's national priorities betrays his true intentions. But beyond the current inflation challenge, our ultimate prospects will be driven by the extent to which we succeed in growing the economy the right way. Growth that is shared and growth that is sustainable and lasts. And to do that, we need productivity enhancing investment in climate and energy, in housing, the digital revolution and more. And so this morning what I was hoping to do uh, here with you today is put our agenda for super in that larger economic context to explain our government's plan to protect super's core purpose, better retirement incomes, while also maximising its potential, including through greater investment in our national priorities in a way that delivers for members and, invest and investors as does his glowing discussion in the question and answer section of his 6,000-word essay written for the monthly and published in this year's February edition about what Chalmers calls values-based capitalism. In that essay, entitled Capitalism After the Crises, 
Chalmers outlines what this values-based capitalism could look like in relation to climate action. Investors should be able to work out the climate risk rating of a firm just as a lender can work out a credit risk rating. So, in 2023, we will create a new sustainable finance architecture, including a new taxonomy to label the climate impact of different investments. That will help investors align their choices with climate targets, help businesses who want to support the transition get financed more easily, and ensure regulators can stamp out greenwashing. This year, our institutions can draw on all the nation's talents. Governments and investors can be partners, not protagonists. Our local communities can gain choice and control over their own futures, and the same regulatory frameworks that ensure that for-profit capital in the private sector creates value for investors can generate public value in the for-purpose economy. This is what values-based capitalism can look like. Now, of course, this so-called values-based capitalism is really just stakeholder capitalism and is ripped straight out of one of the World Economic Forum chief Klaus Schwab's manifestos on the Great Reset, which is an economic transition pushed by unelected business leaders in collusion with global governments to subjugate the population through expensive ESG initiatives and to facilitate a global redistribution of wealth. This Great Reset, which is taking place as we speak, is the greatest threat to freedom since World War II, and it's clear Jim Chalmers wants to bring Australian superannuation into that fold. He admits as much. You know, nothing would make me happier uh, than a private sector in this country which is healthy and growing and profitable and creating all these amazing opportunities for our people in every corner of our country. And I think it's possible to do that uh, without saying we have to engage in what I think is a, a false choice, a false binary between what's good for our economy and what's good for our society. If we can line that up, then we can run the table. In the this is a defining decade for our country and for the world, and if we line those things up nicely, we will be among the best performers as we grow out of what will be a difficult 2023. We are now in the midst of what will no doubt become a long-term inflationary period. Australia's housing market has never been so difficult to break into. It has never been so difficult to raise a family. So much so that many young Australians are just refusing to do so. And I honestly don't blame them. Why bother to set those goals when they're so blatantly unrealistic? The last thing governments should be doing is enforcing policies to compulsorily withhold citizens' own money from them at a time when they need it most, let alone forcing super funds to use that money to bankroll the green initiatives the government is unable to fund on tax dollars alone. Joining me to discuss all of that and more is Saxon Davidson from the Institute of Public Affairs. Saxon, it is so lovely to have you here this evening. Are you doing well? Oh, thank you for having me, Daisy. I am well, and yourself? I'm very well indeed, Saxon, and I'm very much looking forward to this discussion. Now, Saxon, super was made compulsory because it was designed to help Australians save for their retirement. Has it actually worked? 
Well, the plain fact is we don't actually know. Um, the first people that will be the major beneficiaries of um, receiving their super only joined 30, 30 years ago. You know, 30 years in the workforce having compulsory um, putting having compulsory placings into their super. The first real beneficiaries, we don't really know, which is why it's a little jarring to hear talk of Jim Chalmers, the treasurer, um, potentially changing the rules. These Australians have been playing by the rules for 30 years straight. And I believe it's a little unfair that the rules, that, you know, they're going to get the rug taken out of them, out from underneath them. Mm, oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, if you go into the workforce with certain expectations for super, then, you know, surely it's un unfair to sort of radically legislate a new objective and change the rules. And also, given that the majority of superannuation is invested into the property and equities markets, doesn't super make things worse for most Australians by perpetually propping up these already bloated industries? I'm not sure about worse, but what I would say is that super funds should only be investing in the markets that best suit the investors. Um, what we are seeing, it's, it's been floated recently that um, the federal government wants super funds to invest in um, affordable housing. Now, for if super funds um, were to invest, sorry, affordable housing, if it were investable, would have been invested in already by super funds. Um, why the federal government is telling super funds what to invest in and what not to, or potentially doing so, I'm not really aware of why that's a good idea, because it's not actually their money. It's Australian workers' money. It's not the government's money. It's not the super funds' money. It's our money. And our money should be invested into portions of the market that wield the best results. Exactly. And it's interesting you bring that up. I mentioned in my editorial about Jim Chalmers legislating the purpose of super to be equitable and sustainable. And he's mentioned Australia's national priorities. He specifically mentioned things like you know, renewable energy and climate change and housing, as you said. But what happens, Saxon, when there is a conflict, and there will be, between what is equitable and sustainable and what is going to deliver the best return for Superfund members? What do they do then? Well, we will find out, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Look, investing in ESG um, is completely wrong-headed um, for Superfunds. As I mentioned earlier, Superfunds should only be investing in the best possible outcomes for Australians. Um, it should not be used to fund political projects um, for green types, uh, the federal government, the federal government's policy agenda at the time, um, or what the super funds think. It should only be used to maximise the savings for Australians for their retirement. Exactly. And we're in an interesting situation now um, where the Australians who are reaching retirement age were the first ones to be forced to make those um, compulsory super payments, you know, several decades ago. They've spent their whole working life getting these payments skimmed off the top, and it's what they're used to. Do you think that just this force of habit is what has influenced so many Australians to feel like their super isn't actually their money? Uh, probably, yes, um, which is unfortunate because if you, it becomes so used to having a little bit trimmed off you for 30 years straight, um, it can become, you know, at the back of your mind, you sort of forget about it. It's not really um, front of mind when it really should be. Um, you should be able to be aware of where your money is being spent um, or invested um, by your super fund. And if it's being invested in ESG and um, 
and in projects that are not in the best interest of the investor, which is not the super fund, it is the Australian worker. Then they should be very concerned. But because this has been happening for three decades now and the first, benefit, the first real beneficiaries haven't seen the proper upside to it yet, um, it's probably at the back of mind for a lot of Australians. It is, and I love that, um, that, that analogy of the honeypot because it is, it is so insidious that the marketing um, that Labor puts around super combined with you know, the misconception that um, Australians have, it is a way of tricking Australians, isn't it, into not protesting harder for these changes that have been made to super? Um, absolutely. Um, if before the um, last federal election, um, then opposition leader Anthony Albanese said he wouldn't be making any changes to super. Now then that changed to about February last year, February this year, my apologies, when he said that um, we'll be making major changes to super. But that's just... I mean, it's another broken promise, really, because um, <laughs> in other areas as well, you know, two, there's no $275 mm -hmm. saving to energy prices and, you know, no change has turned into no major change um, and how he can quantify major change when the first beneficiaries of super have been playing by the rules for 30 years. I mean, what else could he possibly come up with? Well, you know, he also said that uh, instigating the, the, voice, the voice to parliament wouldn't, wouldn't be a major change to our constitution. Just, just a, minor, a minor change here and there. He has, a, I think, a, a bit of a tendency lately to um, underplay certain, <laughs> certain things, but gosh, I guess that's Anthony Albanese. Now look, Saxon, given the fact it's becoming harder than ever to enter the housing market, as I mentioned in my editorial, and also to start a family, Superannuation is withholding cash from young Australians in a time of their lives where they need it most. I mean, I, I, I hate to sound like a lefty here, but I think that's just immoral, don't you? Uh, yes. Um, Australians should be able to enter the housing market. Um, and unfortunately, we are in the middle of a perfect policy storm with housing. Um, you know, superannuation um, prevents Australians from using their own dollars for the now. Um, but not just that, um, there are supply and demand issues with housing. But the government only seems to be ready to deal with the supply issues. Um, IPA research found that there's going to be a housing shortage of two, over 250,000 homes by 2028 oh my because of the government's migration policies. <laughs> They're unplanned. 1.7 million more people over the next five years. Um, added to that, Australians aren't going to be able to use their own dollars for the now to buy homes when there's going to be 250,000 short of them. And we know that we have a housing shortage. 70% of net new housing supply just last financial year went to international students alone, equivalent of 70%. Now, what can you do, really? Well, exactly. I mean, it's it's a fairly extraordinary situation that we're in. And look, you've, you've explained it all so well to us this evening, Saxon Davidson. Thank you so much for coming on and helping us all make sense of the issue of super because there is a lot of obfuscation about it. Australians do not understand it. And I so appreciate your time to help us sort out the puzzle. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we have time for tonight on The Daisy Cousin Show. I do hope you enjoyed the program as much as I enjoyed presenting it. Make sure you tune in next week and every week to ADH-TV. I'll be right here. Good night, world. I'll see you next time.